Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring contemporary witchcraft and shamanism. My guest is Angela Puka, who is a doctoral researcher in the Department of Religious Studies at Leeds Trinity University in the United Kingdom. She is also the host of her own YouTube channel called Angela's Symposium, in which she focuses in on academic research on esoteric subjects. This is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Angela. It's a pleasure to be with you. Hey, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me on your fantastic YouTube channel. You have been uh, specializing in uh, the academic study of esoteric subjects, which uh, I guess has opened up recently because I, I recall when I was a graduate student, it, it was almost impossible to study uh, contemporary occult esoteric uh, movements, even though uh, at a popular level where I was in school at Berkeley, they were all over the place. Yeah, it is uh, still quite a niche subject, although there have been quite a few studies uh, at this point, especially when it comes to Western esotericism. Uh, so, for example, you have the works by Antoine Fevre uh, in France, and there is a very mm, famous um, school of uh, studies on Western esotericism at the University of Amsterdam with Hanegaff and Marco Passi and uh, von Stockard. So, yeah, actually, uh, there are a few very key scholars, but uh, as overall, I'd say the study of magic-related topics, Western mysticism, esoteric um, subjects, it's still, um, yeah, it needs to be, develop more, I'd say. And that's why I have my YouTube channel to raise awareness that this, yeah, that the academic study of these topics is indeed important. Now, obviously, you're Italian, but you've chosen to do your graduate work in uh, the United Kingdom at the University of Leeds. Uh, do you think the atmosphere in England is more favorable to this sort of research? Yes, indeed it is. Uh, yeah, in Italy, I think at this point it's quite impossible to pursue this kind of research. So, yeah, that's why I chose to do it in the United Kingdom. Yeah, actually, I, it was all because of, a, of my supervisor, which is Dr. Susan Owen. Um, yeah, I came in contact with her and I just really adored her work, uh, which is on shamanism, uh, druidry, and cultural appropriation. And, yeah, and so I really wanted to pursue my PhD with her as my supervisor, and that's what I did, basically. You just used an interesting term, cultural appropriation. Uh, could you explain uh, how that term is used in the study of religions? Oh, well, that's a, a very a highly debated um, term and topic, so you will find very different ideas on the matter. Uh, and yeah, 
on on that topic, I highly recommend my supervisor's book, which is uh, the the oh the native Native American cultural appropriation or the cultural appropriation of Native Americans. Yeah, it is by Susan Owen. So yeah, uh, the term is normally used in reference to the appropriation of other people's culture. And it is something that it is also relevant in my research. It is not as relevant, but uh, it is marginally relevant because uh, in my doctoral research, I have studied both transcultural and indigenous forms of shamanism in Italy. So, of course, it's quite interesting because, um, first of all, I'm using the term indigenous in an Italian context, which is something that I... Yeah, explain at length in my dissertation um, how come I decided to employ this specific term. And also, uh, the transcultural form of shamanism uh, are those that basically import other forms of shamanism from other cultures, those which are normally perceived to be indigenous cultures, and they kind of translate uh, these practices according to, of course, the cultural context they belong to. So it is a, a, a way of importing, reinterpreting, and somehow translating foreign practices and embedding them in a new cultural context. And they are usually defined uh, as transcultural, especially in core shamanism, for example, because they are believed to go to the essence of shamanism, so to the core principles which are transcultural or cross-cultural and they do not need to be uh, related to one specific uh, cultural context but can be applied to multiple ones. Well, I'm under the impression, uh, since you uh, have referred to North American na- uh, natives and uh, their shamanistic practices, that cu- cultural appropriation is, is resented by indigenous people. They, they see outsiders coming in and uh, learning some of their practices and then going out and, and selling uh, workshops and, and, and so on and making money off of their cultural practices while they themselves are still struggling. Is, is, do you find that in other cultures, say, for example, in Italy or uh, elsewhere? Well, in Italy you may find... Uh, some kind of reinterpretations or, for example, native North American practices and other indigenous practices, but they are not normally done to gain uh, a profit from it. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that there are there have been some scholars who have argued that the key aspect of cultural appropriation is um, you know, disrespect of that culture and taking advantage of it from, um, yeah, an economic point of view. So in, in the Italian case, usually transcultural forms of shamanism tend to be, tend really not to have, uh, that kind of, um, yeah, approach, that kind of interest in profiting from it. Um, whereas, yeah, transcultural forms, which may take inspiration from indigenous practices, but they do believe, but they only address the core 
aspects, the core elements which they don't believe belong to that specific indigenous culture, but to all cultures. Um, in that case, yeah, I, I'd say there isn't really a form of cultural appropriation just because uh, culture is not really there. It is kind of, yeah, <laughs> eliminated. And it is one of the criticism, uh, one of the criticisms that they have encountered uh, because there have been other scholars who have criticized forms of transcultural shamanism saying that they are non-cultural rather than cross-cultural. And so it is still an open debate, but yeah, because those who are in favor of them say, no, it's because we go to the essence and uh, the essential practices are actually, they go beyond the cultural belonging. They are, they belong to humankind. And then you have the other party who says, uh, no, because you cannot really have a practice you cannot understand the practice or even pursue a specific practice unless you embed them, embed it into a specific cultural context and into a tradition. So you have these both uh, takes on the topic, which is which is interesting, I'd say. I recall when I was um, a younger person uh, in in Berkeley, there was a large pagan community and many different overlapping pagan communities but I'm pretty sure everybody involved and there were hundreds and hundreds of people probably had a conventional uh, middle class western uh, American in this case upbringing and uh, with with some sort of mainstream religion and then they chose to to leave the religion in which they were raised and assume a kind of uh pagan uh, lifestyle, but it was never uh, even close to being indigenous. And, and I imagine that's the case over most of the world today, at least the Western world. Yeah, I think that uh, paganism and shamanism are two different phenomena, even though they may be related, um, because according to some, shamanism can fall under the umbrella of paganism, but uh, paganism is quite different. Um, paganism is more uh, a religion of course that may be debated as well because you will find pagans who say it's not a religion and other pagans who say it is a religion so uh, in, normally that depends on how much the person associates the term religion to monotheistic religions uh, because sometimes they feel like religion is a um, um, how can I put it, like a constraining kind of label, uh, which is a, is a constraint. And that is, when, when you ask them, how come do you think that, they tend to um, describe to you a monotheistic religion. But yeah, there, are, there have been quite a few scholars in the past decade who have argued for the term religion to be sort of... <laughs> um, not not linked as much anymore to those specific religions, but just to different religious phenomena who are not necessarily of the monotheistic kind. Many years ago, I interviewed Michael Harner. I've even been in touch with him relatively recently. Uh, and I gather from 
you're writing that he's actually launched uh, practically a worldwide movement of contemporary individuals who are practicing uh, shamanism uh, in this transcultural mode that you've described. Yes, Michael Harner was pretty key in the spreading of shamanism in the Western world. I'd say that he and Carlos Castaneda are the two main, the two key figures uh, here in the popularization of shamanism in the Western world. Because uh, while Carlos Castaneda has sort of given a model for the Westerner to associate um, himself or, or herself too, which is the model of a Westerner rational person who encounters very different and, um, yeah, perhaps not as rationalistic as uh, a Westerner may think practices. And there is this encounter between these two words. And somehow Castaneda has given us the opportunity to see how these two words can relate and the person can still maintain their foothold in our Western ways of perceiving the world. Uh, so I say that Carlos Castaneda has given us the framework, the cultural framework and the theoretical framework for a Westerner with a specific positivistic, rationalistic mindset to enter in contact with indigenous uh, practices which are very outside of the box for the way we think, with the way we have been thinking after the Enlightenment. And uh, Michael Harner has given um, Europe and, and the Western world in general, uh, especially the United States actually at first, and then um, it moved on to the rest of the Western, the other Western countries. Uh, Michael Harner and Kush Shamanism have provided Westerners with techniques, with practical techniques for them to implement and say, okay, even though I have, I was not born in an indigenous context, I can still practice shamanism because those techniques are cross-cultural and I can enter into a shamanic journey just uh, from my living room, basically, by applying those techniques. And also he has given Westerners the opportunity to pursue the shamanic journey and um, shamanic practices, even without the use of intelligence, because he explains that you can enter an altered state of consciousness even without the use of psychotropic drugs. Uh, just by using the monotonous sound of drums and rattles. And so, yeah, I say that whereas in Castaneda you do have the use of uh, psychotropic drugs. And, yeah, I'd say that Michael Harner was really practical in how he affected through his tradition of course shamanism uh, and how he open the doors for Westerners to experience these kind of practices which would have been otherwise perceived as um, very far from our way of doing and thinking. In both of these cases, with Michael Harner and uh, Carlos Castaneda, you have examples of uh, individuals who came out of the scholarly world and essentially launched uh, contemporary 
religious movements. Uh, you also point out that in, in the case of Wicca, uh, Gerald Gardner, uh, who was a scholar, uh, founded uh, what has become a contemporary religious movement. Yeah, this is a, a concept that it is addressed in a, in a very interesting book, apart from my paper, which is on uh, scientism and post-truth in uh, contemporary shamanism in Italy. Uh, there is a very interesting book on this, which is called The Scientification of Religion by uh, von uh, Stockhart. I hope I'm pronouncing it uh, correctly. Uh, and it talks about of uh, how academia has affected significantly new religious movements such as um, paganism and shamanism, uh, both because you have cases of scholars who have become practitioners, and in other cases you have practitioners who have drawn upon academic scholarship in order to validate their beliefs and their practices. So I'd say that, for example, um, Gardner was not a scholar in terms of an academic scholar, um, but uh, he was using Margaret Murray to justify and validate his beliefs to, to say that there was this, um, this tradition of witchcraft which uh, has had been going on since the uh, the ancient times and uh, still existed at that point and there was a horn god which was uh, demonized by Christianity and all these kind of things. These were published by um, what at the time was an academic publication which was The God of the Witches by Margaret Murray which was then later disproved <laughs> quite uh, massively by um other yeah by uh, other scholars uh, like for example Ronald Hutton so now nobody in the academic world thinks that that kind of scholarship which is quite outdated as well so of course even the methodology and the, the access they had to information was limited but it is what is relevant here is not how accurate Margaret Murray's works were, but how impactful the fact that an academic had published that specific uh, things and th those specific information was to the birth of Wicca as a as a, a religion, basically. So yeah, that is interesting. And also Carlos Castaneda was a, a PhD student at the UCLA in the United States, and he actually only completed his PhD. He didn't pursue the academic career afterwards, whereas Michael Harner, we, we may say, was more of a proper academic in that he, after his PhD, he has published um, quite a few, quite a lot, and also he had been teaching in uh, universities for decades, I think, yeah. It seems to me that there's the situation is that there are many people of uh, Western middle class backgrounds who are seeking uh, a different kind of spiritual path, and if they don't have direct access to a, a lineage that uh, is authentic uh, and has indigenous roots, then they seek uh, justification or uh, appropriation from. Uh, academic sources, 
even if those sources turn out to be faulty? I think that that is uh, kind of the way we work as Westerners in, ingrained in our culture. Because I think that when we have been trained, I mean, we live in a world where certain things do not belong to our ontological world. So certain things don't exist in the, uh, yeah, in our society, magic doesn't exist, spirits don't exist, and if they do, they are embedded in specific religious uh, belief systems. But uh, our lay society really does not encompass this kind of belief. So when you are a person who is somewhat an outsider to this kind of theoretical framework that we live in um, as belonging to uh, this society, this post-enlightenment, positivistic society, then you have to rationalize somehow in order for those practices which are believed by your culture to be um, not acceptable, you have to make them accessible somehow. And of course, academia is, uh, yeah, <laughs> is the, of course, the epitome of rationality uh, for the average person. I mean, the average person, academia is the epitome of science and rationalism and so what, be what better way to justify and incorporate in your theoretical understanding of reality certain practices which wouldn't otherwise be considered um, acceptable uh, if not by, uh, yeah, kind of employing this kind of, um, this kind of way. I, I guess that that is, one of the reasons as to why people tend to, um, yeah, kind of having a high regard what academics say, especially with shamanism and uh, paganism and esoteric practices. I'd say that the community of practitioners tends to care very much about the academic study of these subjects. I guess because they want to kind of prove to the world and to themselves that they are not crazy just because they are doing something different from what other people do and what other people believe. So in your own research, uh, you have done several uh, field trips in Italy looking at uh, indigenous witchcraft practices that are, are really uh, presumably yeah, ancient and long-standing and have, have sort of been an underground culture in, in Italy for many, many generations. Yes, I have. <laughs> and also, I understand you found amongst these practitioners that they also looked up to you to give some sort of confirmation of what they were doing because of your academic background. Yeah, that actually happened both with the transcultural practitioners and the indigenous autochthonous Italian um, practitioners. Yeah, for example, during a field work with uh, core shamanic practitioners, we had a very intense experience um, on one specific night, um, and the day after, people were 
I say that most of the practitioners, most of the attendees to that workshop came to me over breakfast or over lunch asking, so Angela, what do you think as an academic about what happened yesterday? Uh, can, but the, the way they were asking, it was um, a mixture of um, seeking my validation and kind of hinting at you cannot really say that uh, it was all made up, you cannot really, yeah, it was like a way of saying you were there, you saw, you experienced, so as an academic, can you deny what you saw and what you perceived? So it was, a, it, it was like they were already convinced that what they had experienced was, was true. Of course, true is a very difficult um, term to use and to position. <laughs> But yeah, it was true to them and it was uh, something that actually happened in their reality, in our reality at the time, was a, a shared reality. Um, but yeah, they were already convinced of that, but they still wanted my validation. When it comes to the indigenous practitioners, uh, actually the way I encountered them was um, kind of serendipitous. It was pretty by chance, I'd say, because at first my doctor, doctoral research was supposed to only look at transcultural practices, uh, sometimes referred to as neo-shamanism. But uh, at some point, uh, there was an informant of mine who came to me and said, oh, Angela, have you heard of this person who says she's uh, an Italian shaman, not an Italian practitioner of shamanism, but an Italian shaman, an Italian shaman. So I came in contact with her, I reached out to her, and uh, I spent a few days at her with her husband and children and in-laws, so it was a full immersion. And she uh, said basically that she's the last Italian shaman of a hereditary tradition, and um, during the days I spent with her, she explained to me all the traits of her tradition because, of course, I was there to uh, do interviews and I also did participant observation. So I attended rituals, uh, even impromptu rituals that she wanted me to uh, participate in and see. And, yeah, and while she was explaining to me the traits of her tradition, it kind of rang a bell, and I thought, wait, but I have already heard of these practices. And so I asked her, but what is the difference between your tradition and this form of folk healing, folk healing magic in Italy? And she said, oh, that's a, a very good question. And then she replied that her tradition had not been syncretized with Catholicism, whereas uh, folk healing, folk vernacular um, witchcraft in Italy um, has is pretty syncretized with Catholicism. So that was her answer, but at the same time it prompts me to look further into it, and then it sort of opened the world. <laughs> Because then I realized that there are, that uh, it is quite widespread throughout the country, and uh, basically th this kind of vernacular witches are everywhere. And so I put their practices, their belief system, and everything in comparison to what shamanism can be said to be, which is another 
very difficult um, yeah, identifier because it is still quite debated. But yeah, I put it in comparison with what shamanism is said to be and with a new way of addressing what the definition of shamanism may be. And so basically I do argue in my uh, doctoral research that this tradition of vernacular witchcraft and vernacular healing practices in Italy are or is a form of uh, indigenous Italian shamanism. One of the words that you used in, in your paper I found interesting in, with regard to the transcultural or, or more modern approaches is, is that they take the uh, more ancient traditions and, and the word you use is they're sanitized. That uh, uh, I, I, w Tell me what uh, the word sanitized means in this context. Uh, when... Transcultural practices, which are the ones which are imported and reinterpreted by Westerners, are put in comparison with indigenous practices, which uh, tend to be uh, related to indigenous people, to the uh, shamanism of indigenous people. There are certain quite uh, evident differences that you find. And one of these is uh, what has been referred to in literature as sanitization or sanitizing. And sanitizing means that all the dangerous and hazardous aspects of the of the practice have been totally removed from uh, transcultural shamanism. So you wouldn't have for you wouldn't have like the use of psychotropic drugs. You wouldn't have uh, anything dangerous like being left in a cave for uh, weeks without food and water. And this is actually. This actually relates to uh, the, the Italian shaman I was just uh, talking about because she really doesn't like transcultural shamanism. And one of the things she said uh, was she explained to me her initiation, uh, which, was, um, which happened when she was 16 and she was left in the woods tied to a tree and she was left there to, um, yeah... Um, <laughs> just to, to be there and uh, without food or water and she had to even uh, pee on herself and everything. And she explained that as a necessary process of dehumanization so that she would be reborn again as a, as a shaman. And she said, how can, how can that same process of dehumanization and sort of transcending your previous self can occur if you imagine yourself to go into a cave instead of being left into a cave for for weeks, um, so she was she felt really strongly about it. So sanitizing is kind of removing everything dangerous from the practice, which may occur in different non-Western contexts, and quite rarely occur when it comes to transcultural shamanism. It's being used as a way of kind of undermining the sometimes the validity of transcultural practice, which is not something that I endorse. I think that they are just different and they run into trouble when they, and sometimes they do, they want to claim that they do exactly the same thing as indigenous shamans do. So, but um, I wouldn't say that they are not valid practices. I just say that they are clearly, clearly different. And one of the uh, one of the differences is the one you 
you mentioned. The idea of sanitization. Uh, because I, I did do an interview not too long ago with a, a fellow named Andy Hilton, who's written a book on initiation, an academic book. And uh, he went through a, one of these weekend workshops on, on shamanism and, and described having had um, what seemed to him to be an authentic out-of-body experience in the course of a weekend workshop. He was, he was quite amazed by it, and he felt it was something like an authentic initiation experience that really changed his life. But I gather that in indigenous cultures, a, a process like that could, could take years. You don't necessarily do it over a single weekend. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it, it does take years. Uh, apart from the indigenous shamanism, I've also been in contact for, yeah, quite <laughs> some time, for several, several years, with a form of indigenous shamanism from South America, which is um, the Mapuche shamanism. And, yeah, I so I'm very familiar with other indigenous uh, traditions, especially with Mapuche shamanism. And yeah, it, these, these are traditions where initiations are pretty long and difficult and sometimes life-threatening, to be honest. Sometimes shamans don't want to be shamans. They are forced into that because it's either that or um, death, basically. So it's, it's not uh, as you know, uh, romanticized as it has been in some cases uh, in the Western world because we have this idea of the shaman as this mystical figure. And this is all due to Mir Celiade, which is uh, an author who also popularized um, shamanism before Castaneda, but he was more... Um, niche, I'd say, Castaneda became uh, really popularized shamanism because he mm, was well-read even among, you know, uh, the average people, not just academics or scholars who were particularly interested in shamanism. But yeah, Micheliade was the first one, I think, or one of the first ones who uh, portrayed the shaman as this mystical figure who belongs to this, um, you know, uh, world that predates our current world and can give us access to what is really there beyond our um, structures, the structures we have created as Westerners. So, yeah, that is a, a, rom a way of romanticizing shamanism, I'd say, which is pretty common. <laughs> Earlier in, in our conversation, you made a distinction between paganism and, and shamanism, although you, you indicated they overlapped. As, as I recall from your uh, writing, uh, you imply that the term witchcraft is sometimes uh, used synonymously with shamanism. In, in Italy, the, uh, there is a paper that I've written on the, on discourse, on the discourse analysis of the terms witch and shaman in Italy and how the two, how people who used to refer to themselves as witch are now referring to themselves as shamans. And that is because um, basically witch has 
especially, of course, I'm referring to the Italian term, which is strega. Uh, and it has a long history of antagonism with the Catholic Church. And it's very loaded as a term with negative connotations, um, even from popular culture. Whereas shaman, as I was just mentioning, is pretty seen mostly in a positive light. I mean, people, there are, of course, shamans who would uh, do, you know, harmful forms of magic, but usually people in their imagination, in their the imaginary of the shaman is that of a very positive person, a person which helps the community and uh, heals people, whereas the witch is more associated to uh, perhaps, you know, evil magic and binding spells and dangerous, dangerous things which may be considered threatening to people. So shaman is a term that people in Italy, practitioners in Italy, are using more and more, um, yeah, and they prefer it to which for this reason, basically, because it is better, better received. I think it is kind of, it's, this, it's a similar process to what happened with Wicca. Even Wicca was a form of magic which was perceived very in a very... Uh, harmless light, like magic is now connecting to nature and even uh, the magical spells tend to be very um, positive and uh, you won't have, you wouldn't harm anyone, otherwise it would uh, come back to you three times fold. And all this kind of way of portraying witchcraft and magic really helped Wicca to become popular and also help practitioners of magic to be accepted and understood by a society which before Wicca only thought of witchcraft as something evil and um, yeah and dangerous to to the society and to the community. So yeah, I'd say that both have sometimes romanticizing a practice or a figure can have actually a very um, productive <laughs> uh, outcome um, for the community of practitioners because uh, sometimes you have to break through certain preconceptions that society has in order for you to enter what is considered to be acceptable and then you can show all the shades uh, that that specific practice actually uh, actually encompasses so well done to Wicca and the, romantici the romanticization of shamanism even though you are Italian you found that in England the environment was more favorable for the sorts of uh, research that you're doing I wonder if it's not because the Anglican Church in England has been more open to these things whereas the Roman Catholic Church has a history of uh, more hostility to various esoteric movements. So, uh, for example, psychical research, uh, which is a big interest of mine, has flourished in uh, England in, in particular. Yeah, that, that is possible. To be honest, I, I had a very positive experience here in England in terms of um, how open academia is. 
And it is particularly interesting because uh, I'm teaching at a Catholic institution, which is <laughs> which is fascinating because it's like Catholicism somehow follows me. <laughs> it's something that I was born into, and somehow, yeah, I'm still uh, somewhat connected to it. So yeah, even though I I am teaching in a Catholic university, they are really open to uh, what I do. And in the past years, I've uh, I have led um, a course, a, uni- uh, a course at the university, which was which was specifically on magic. It was on magic in religious practices and how magic is um, embedded and conceptualized and integrated in the, across different religions. Although in my module, I decided to focus more on non-monotheistic religions for obvious reasons, I guess, because it's, it's not as controversial to uh, analyze how magic is embedded in tantrism uh, than it is in, yeah, in, in, a, in a Christian religion. So, because, of course, some may argue that there is magic there, whereas most would argue that it's not um, quite magic. So, yeah. But they they didn't really have anything to say about it, whereas in Italy, I can't even begin to imagine <laughs> that possibility. Um, yeah. At the moment, I guess that it is still, yeah. A pretty, a strongly Catholic country. I did another interesting interview with uh, Zofia Weaver from the Society for Psychical Research about uh, Polish mediums and Polish spiritualism. And she pointed out it was very difficult in Poland for the spiritualists because the Catholic Church regarded spiritualism as uh, some sort of an abominable practice. So... Uh, people, even the talented psychics, were discouraged, uh, greatly discouraged by the church. That's interesting. Now, let me ask you another question while I have you here. You did a fascinating paper discussing scientism and post-truth as as different modalities for approaching reality. And uh, we've talked about the scientism in the sense that uh, many of the uh, people engaged in transcultural shamanism look to academic experts for confirmation of of their practices. How does post-truth fit in these days? We we hear an awful lot about it, especially in the era of Donald Trump in the United States. Yes. <laughs> yeah, post-truth uh, fits in because, um, well, post-truth is, we we can kind of define it as, um, a view of reality where how emotionally engaging something a narrative is is more important to the actual fact. So the way people understand reality in a post-truth um, theoretical framework is not based on factual evidence but rather on how emotionally gripping the narrative of things is and uh yeah i think it's um it's something which is becoming more and more common uh in 
today's <laughs> in today's world. And, and in fact, I know you have a Facebook group uh, focusing on uh, contemporary shamanism in Italy, where uh, various participants in that group really uh, express post-truth narratives that they believed in strongly and, and uh, found very compelling, and the community of people found compelling, even though they were not factually based. So, yeah, I have uh, opened a Facebook group which was um, created specifically for my for my doctoral research to gather both informants and to create a community. Of course, they are aware that uh, I'm a researcher and that everything they post can be used anonymously for my research. And uh, there have been numerous interactions where this kind of narrative um, was was re- very clear and was evidenced by the way they were interacting. Because sometimes you had, there were altercations. Of course, there are quite often altercations on what is shamanism, for example, what constitutes a real shaman or real shamanism. And then you can, um, as you may read from uh, my paper, uh, basically those who tend to be more convincing and uh, kind of, um, yeah, the, those who tend to be more driven by emotion and uh, try to uh, create a, a more interesting narrative tend to tend to sort of win the conversation. So the conversation is won by the most compelling narrative rather than what is what has been experienced in the actual lived reality by those who participate in the discussion, which is quite interesting. Now, I gather the distinction also is that uh, from the scientific perspective, people with the most credentials who are considered experts are, are going to have an elite position, that their opinion counts more, whereas uh, in the post-truth world, it's really just a question of uh, numbers. Whatever the community is willing to go along with becomes uh, accepted as reality. Yes, and that's why I thought it was so fascinating that there are that there are these two theoretical strands, uh, theoretical strands in um, contemporary shamanism in Italy. Maybe they are present even outside of Italy, but of course, as my fieldwork is in Italy, I focus on uh, on that one. And yeah, it is very interesting because on one end, you have this scientific mindset where only what science says is true, and so they would really seek validation from academic experts, while on the other hand, they tend to be anti-specialism somehow and just believe what is most fascinating and most compelling rather than what actually happens. So it is a very interesting mixture, which might seem contradictory contradictory at first. And maybe it even is. It's just that human beings are not straightforward. We are really complex, and sometimes we encompass things which might be considered um not as <laughs> not as compatible but they are compatible to certain people and certain communities 
I thought that your analysis was fascinating and that uh, it really applies, uh, especially here in the United States, to culture as a whole, not just to uh, contemporary shamanistic practitioners. Yeah, even uh, what we spoke about before about the romanticizing of shamanism, that is a form of post-truth, a way of seeing post-truth at play as well, because you if if you look at what shamans do across the world they are not really this necessarily and only these very peaceful individuals totally harmless and so on and so forth but they can do all sorts of things uh, even michael harner reports that he paid for his training with a shotgun to to the shaman so um this way of deciding at some point, either, I don't know, maybe they are not aware of this um, kind of aspects of shamanism, but at some point they sort of decide that the shaman and shamanism is this very um, peaceful and romanticized practice which uh, is harmless and will put you in contact with the spirit world and help the community with no harm whatsoever, neither to yourself or to others. And, yeah, so this is, I'd say, a, a post-truth element in that it is a, a narrative which is pleasing to the person who endorses it, but it might not necessarily reflect what the actual facts on that specific subject uh, would say. Well, Angela Puka, this has been a uh, very enlightening, informative discussion. Uh, I'm really happy to have had this time with you, and I'd like to encourage viewers of New Thinking Aloud to visit your YouTube channel, Angela's Symposium, where you cover uh, the realm of esoteric culture from an academic perspective. Uh, I think uh, there's a lot to be gained there, Angela. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you so much, Jeff. It was a pleasure to be here and to, to meet you and speak to you. And for those of you viewing, thank you for being with us.